Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Uh, we are continuing our series on James. We'll be reading James 2, the first uh, 13 verses of chapter 2. Uh, keep your finger there. We will uh, turn to Leviticus 19 for our first reading, our Old Testament reading. We'll be reading Leviticus 19, uh, verses 15 to 18. Uh, beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, uh, this is God's holy and infallible word given for our good and for his glory. So give your full attention to it. You shall not do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or deferred to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Let's turn now to James 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted, convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Uh, grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. O Lord our God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
So James is picking up much of what he's been talking about in chapter 1. Things like the poor and the rich, what it means to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And James, if you remember, ended chapter 1 with what worthless and true religion looks like. Uh, In many ways, James is still talking about what true religion looks like and what it doesn't look like. And he'll again use the rich and the poor as a touch point for this. Because for James, the way we treat the poor and the rich says something about our faith, our religion, our committed uh, faith, what we are committed to. Uh, This morning, I want to just wrestle with this simple idea with you. And it's this, we shouldn't play favorites because it's diametrically opposed to the mercy that God has shown to us. I'll say that one more time. Uh, We shouldn't play favorites because it's diametrically opposed to the mercy that God has shown to us. James begins with a summary. He commands, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Uh, If you look closely, James is pointing out a contradiction. Uh, On the one hand, there's holding the faith in Jesus Christ. It's a claim to be a follower of the Messiah. But on the other hand, they're showing uh, partiality or favoritism. Uh, For James, these two things do not belong together. It's impossible to hold faith in Jesus Christ and simultaneously practice favoritism. They are radically incompatible. Don't you, uh, don't think you can lay claim to faith in Christ and play favorites. Why? Because God himself isn't like that. He doesn't know, he doesn't show favoritism according to Paul in Romans 2. Uh, The word for partiality or favoritism here probably comes from our Old Testament reading uh, from Leviticus 19, verse 15. Again, it says, You shall not be partial to the poor, there it is, or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So what does it mean to show partiality? It's to make an unjust judgment about someone based on their external appearance. It's when we look at people and categorize them based on our assumptions about them. I mean, when was the last time you did that? Don't answer that. Uh, because, uh, because it's a problem, isn't it? It's a problem even in the church. Because the church of Christ is supposed to be full of all kinds of different people. And when we counter, uh, encounter different people, all kinds of assumptions go into our heads. Uh, But James gives us a vivid picture of what playing favorites looks like. Uh, He says to imagine two types of people who come to your church. One is super fancy. He's wearing expensive clothes. I mean, this person has bling. His jewelry is blinding. He's glitzy and seems very impressive. Uh, Clearly, he's rich and he's very high on the status pole. But on the other hand, there's this other person who's super shabby. He's got dirt under his fingernails. His shirt and his pants are full of holes. And he's probably stinky. By all accounts, he's poor and lowly. He has nothing. 
What's the temptation for us as we look at the appearances of these two individuals? What are some of our implicit assumptions about these people? Well, James knows our hearts very well, doesn't he? Our temptation is to make superficial distinctions between the poor person and the rich person. Internally, to the rich person, we say to ourselves, well, he has nice clothes on. He's, his gold ring is so shiny. Let's have him sit in the front of the, uh, of the church. By the way, uh, this is why uh, our, our front pews are very comfortable, because they're places of honor. So, you know, I, I hope many of you w- would find that appealing in terms of wh- where you sit in church. But the front, but the front is a place of honor. And so it's easy to put the rich in places of honor because we're tempted to think, what, that they're worthy. But what about the poor person in dirty clothes, that person with nothing? Internally, we're saying to ourselves, I mean, what is this guy doing here? Stinky people need to sit on the floor or in the back. They belong not in a place of honor, but in a place of dishonor. That's what sitting at someone's feet is all about in our passage. It's a physical sign that someone is beneath you, that he is inferior to you. Uh, When we make these assumptions about people based on their physical appearance, James says that we have become judges with evil thoughts. It's evil. It doesn't belong in the kingdom of God because we are no longer submitting to the true judge. God is our judge. That's why James will later say in chapter 4, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Favoritism says God is not the lawgiver. He's not the judge. I am. That's pretty heinous, isn't it? Who are we that we should be judged over our neighbors? That's not our job. That's God's job. Isaiah tells us that our job is to learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, feed the widow's cause. Sounds familiar, right? That's James. Are we playing judge or are we pleading the cause of our neighbors? So let me ask, what kind of assumptions do we make about people when we, when we look at them? Do we assume some are more honorable than others because of their appearance? The truth is we have a lot of biases that we might not be aware of, or maybe we are aware of them and don't think uh, and, and think that it's okay to have them. We judge pe- people based on their social class, based on their gender, based on the color of their skin, based on their intelligence, based on their politics, based on where they live based on where they grew up, based on their ethnicity and nationality, based on their abilities and disabilities, based on their accent, based on their age, based on their denomination. So what is it for you? How have you become judge over other people? What causes you to place people in places of dishonor? Beloved, our our temptation to play favorites is very real. We do things like put the rich in good places and put the poor in lowly places. 
I think uh, sometimes we don't take this seriously enough. But I want you to notice how contrary this is to the character of God. That's why James says playing favorites is not the way that God chooses. God doesn't choose based on external appearance or perceived value in a human being. He doesn't care how much we have and how good we look. In fact, God is more drawn to those who have nothing. He chooses the poor that they might have something more valuable than money, fancy clothes and golden rings. James rhetorically asks, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? The obvious answer is yes. Because this is our God. He doesn't see as man sees. He sees the heart. That's why he chooses the poor in the world. He chooses the needy. So for Paul, uh, he tells us that, the, uh, that God chooses many who are not of noble birth. 1 Corinthians 1.26 uh, It's not surprising that this idea was even prevalent uh, in, in, in James's contemporaries. It was prevalent in Judaism at that time. Uh, listen to one rabbinic text. It says, God stands with the poor and not with those who oppress them. If you want to say that's reverse favoritism, fine. But if you really think about it, it's good news for all of us. It doesn't matter how much you have or don't have, because we are all poor and needy before the Lord. Uh, you know who knew this? David knew this. Remember, he was a king. He had it all. But King David well understood who he was before the Lord. Listen to what he says in Psalm 40. Verse 17, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. There's so much irony here. Because dishonoring the poor is actually dishonoring ourselves. Do you realize that? Do you see how crazy it is to treat the poor unfairly? How crazy it is to put the rich in a place of honor. It's to forget who we are. And worst of all, when we dishonor the oppressed, we're actually dishonoring God himself. Why? Uh, because God identifies with the lowly and, and the oppressed as you have done uh, to the least of these. You have done to me. Right? And the I irony goes even deeper still. When the privileged are more honored than the, than the oppressed, we end up honoring the very ones that oppress us. Think about that. The abuser not only gets a pass, but he is honored by the very ones he is abusing. Do you realize that the world smells hypocrisy a mile away? God's good name is blasphemed among them when we don't act in a way consistent with the Lord, with who the Lord is. The world sees it and the world knows it. They say things like, the, the Lord is not good. Look at the way his own people treat the oppressed. He must be like that. The world calls us out when we don't love one another. And it's not just the rich, it's the whole world. 
think about why anyone would privilege the rich in the first place. It's not because the rich are inherently better than the poor. If you think that, maybe you need to spend some time with rich people, right? No, because this is about benefit. It's about what I can get when I treat the rich better than the poor. Because there's no advantage in honoring the poor and the oppressed. That's why self-advantage is really the reason behind favoritism. Favoritism teaches us to favor people that make us comfortable. People who advance our cause. Meanwhile, it teaches us to dishonor the lowly, those suffering oppression. Uh, this is why James uh, turns to what he calls the royal law. That is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, which comes from our Old Testament reading again in Leviticus 19. For James, this is supremely important to the kingdom of God. That's why he calls it royal. It's certainly, it was certainly important to his brother, right? Jesus Christ. When asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus responded with uh, what all good Jews knew already. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love your, your Lord, uh, the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength. See, all the people knew that already. That's the greatest commandment. But then Jesus adds one more right next to it. He says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so James says, if you're loving your neighbor, you're doing good. You have peace. Because he says you're fulfilling the royal law. And remember, this royal law is the word that has been implanted in us uh, that James was talking about in chapter 1. And so when we are loving our neighbor, we are living in uh, consistently with that word implanted within us. Uh, but the opposite is true if you're playing favorites. Because favoritism fails to see our neighbors, who our neighbors are, and love them as ourselves. Uh, this reminds me of the story of the Good Samaritan. I think we're all pretty familiar with that story, right? Uh, but maybe not so much with the context. So there's a lawyer. Uh, he comes up to Jesus and asks, How do I inherit eternal life? Right? That's a question we should all be asking all the time. But Jesus' response is probably surprising to reform people. Jesus appeals to the law. Because for Jesus, the answer is already there. And this lawyer gets it. I mean, he is a lawyer after all. Uh, he says, you should love God and your neighbor as yourself. And so in affirmation, Jesus says, good, go and do it and you will live. But we all know something was deeply wrong, right? There's something deeply wrong because this lawyer knew he hasn't treated everyone like himself. So the text tells us, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? 
What is this lawyer doing? He is seeking for an excuse. How many of us have asked that question when we don't want to love our neighbor? When we need an excuse not to show mercy? Who is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. That's the context. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And so he's probably a Jew. He's robbed and assaulted. He's half dead. And first uh, came the priest. He passes by. Second the, uh, came the Levite. He passes by. But the third one, a Samaritan, he stops. Because he had compassion on this bloody dying of a man. The Samaritan takes care of his wounds and even pays for his stay at the inn as he recovers. After telling this parable, Jesus asks the lawyer, Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among, among robbers? And the lawyer says, the one who showed his mercy showed him mercy, and Jesus said, uh, said to him, "You go and do likewise." Do you see? Everyone is our neighbors, including our enemies. Not just the one who look like us, and have the same background and beliefs as us. The Samaritan favored a man so different from him. The Samaritan showed mercy. Here's what's interesting. The word for favoritism here, in the Greek, it literally means to receive according to the face or face-taking. I want you to look back to James 1, verse 23 to 24. It says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. I hope you can see where I'm going with this. When we play favorites, we forget what we look like. We fail to see our reflection in our oppressed brother. When we don't aid and honor them, we are not doing the word. We are hearers only. Uh, no wonder James says, we are committing sin and are convicted by the law as, as transgressors when we play favorites. You see, as we've already seen, showing partiality makes us a judge over other people. But the reality is that we are going to be judged under the law, and the law breaks us. Because if we fail at any single point, we step over the line and we are held accountable for the whole thing. We are deemed as transgressors. There isn't a single one of us here who does not stand guilty when judged under the law. Uh, this is something we encounter week after week in our call to repentance in the liturgy. It reminds us who we are before the Lord, guilty. So James gives this simple instruction. So people, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Uh, learn to use your mouth and your body 
under the scrutiny of the law. Every word and act matters. Uh, to be honest, I think there's a, a mental, if not a theological hurdle here. Uh, because notice that James uses again that phrase, law of liberty. Uh, but James, I thought you said we're transgressors of the, uh, under the law. So why still call it the law of liberty if we will be judged by it? What's going on here? That's where verse 13 comes in. Uh, look, look with me what it says. It says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is about mercy. Because for James, mercy is not in opposition to the law. I think people have this idea that God's law only involves strict justice. No, the law... The instructions of God actually contain mercy. We read things in the Psalter like, let, let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. And great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. How is that possible? Well, because when we go to the God of the law, what do we find? We find mercy. That's what faith in Jesus Christ is all about. But you better believe that faith isn't just passive. It's responsive and active. The one who has received mercy will, turn, will in turn show mercy. That's why favoritism is so heinous. Favoritism is anti-mercy. It is diametrically opposed to the mercy that God has shown to us. Uh, Jesus told, uh, told a story in Matthew 18 that's in, very much in line with this. Uh, there was a servant who owed a crushing debt to his master. It was big, about 20 years worth of salary. Uh, no way he could have paid it off. Uh, but in a surprising twist, the servant's master, out of his pity, showed him great mercy. Why? Because... The servant begged for it. All of his debt was forgiven. Debt free, right? We all want that, debt free. But what happened next? Well, along came a fellow servant who owed a small amount of money to this servant. About a day's worth of salary. I mean, nothing compared to the debt that he owed his master. But the fellow servant couldn't repay it yet. He had no money. And so the fellow servant asked for patience and begged for mercy. He pleaded with him just as the previous servant pleaded with his master. But ironically, the servant, the servant starts choking this fellow servant and throws him into jail. And guess what happens when his master learns about it? He says to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And, sh and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In the end, the servant is judged and, and thrown into jail. Uh, friends, that's what it looks like when judgment triumphs over mercy. That's the essence of favoritism. 
It's when we favor anyone or anything for the sake of our own benefit. It's a refusal to show mercy as we have been shown mercy. Isn't this the opposite of what we find in the Lord Jesus Christ? Our Lord did not play favorites so that he can benefit from other people. He never played that game. No, Jesus showed mercy to those who would ask and receive it. He came for the poor and the lowly and the, and the oppressed, the downcast, the marginalized. He himself got low enough to sit at his disciples' feet, a place of dishonor that he might wash and serve them. So where do we most encounter mercy triumphant over judgment? Well, it's at the cross. It's at the cross. At the cross, Jesus the King took on our poverty. He took on our judgment. He underwent the greatest oppression imaginable. He did it to identify with us and show us unthinkable mercy. Uh, let me just close with this reflection. Do we ignore the grief and oppression of the lowly for the sake of our comforts? Who holds, who holds the place of honor in our hearts? That's a good question. Who holds the place of honor in our hearts? Because until we see our reflection in the poor and oppressed, we won't put them in places of honor. As long as it is about us, we will always fail to see ourselves in our hurting brothers and sisters. And so are we committed? Are we committed to loving our neighbors as ourselves? Because if we're not, then we aren't really truly committed to the Lord Jesus. We are committed to something else. You know, at the moment, I'm seeing too many identify as Americans before as Christians. Uh, beloved, let us prioritize loving our neighbors like Jesus before even our own country. Even before our own comfort. I like how one, one writer says this. He says, When love your neighbor takes a backseat to American partisanship, when the protection and advancement of our own rights and privileges take precedence over the needs of the least of these, Spiritually and socially sensitive people can find it difficult to get on board with versions of Christianity that look, smell, and talk more like Uncle Sam than Jesus Christ. Beloved, we need less excusing and more lamenting and repenting. Let's choose mercy over self. Let's put the oppressed in places of, places of honor. And so I plead with you, church, don't let the world outdo us in mercy. Because we have true and lasting mercy here. We have Jesus Christ. So may the broken find mercy among us and not be oppressed by us. So if your politics, your heritage, your tradition, your history, your practices, your policies, whatever it might be, 
If any of those things causes you to honor the privilege over the oppressed, cast them aside. Because if those are more important to you than honoring the oppressed, something is deeply wrong. Don't let judgment triumph over mercy. But there's good news, isn't there? We have this table before us this morning. It reminds us that we are sorely in need of mercy, just as much as the poor and the oppressed do. But it is also a reminder that God has, has shown us mercy. He has shown that he, he doesn't play favorites. And so the mercy of the cross belongs not to the self-sufficient, not to the self-preserving, but to those who call out for mercy. Uh, let us come as those in need of mercy, that we might ourselves show mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we, we ask now that you would attend this meal, that you would apply your grace upon our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. I invite now the elders um, to come, that we might partake of the Lord's Supper together. Let us pray. Our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you praise and thanksgiving for your great mercy you've shown to us. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. You have, been, you have seen our spiritual poverty and have showered us with the riches of heaven at the expense of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, your mercy never comes to an end. And so teach us to do justice and to love kindness that you might, through us, lift up the, the downcast. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.